Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce, how are you doing? Hey, David. I'm doing all right. Thank you. How about yourself today? So far, so good. So far, so good, Bruce. So uh, we got a little podcast coming up here, and we're going to talk about a number of subjects. We've been running down the Cult of Hockey list of top prospects for the Edmonton Oilers, and we'll uh, we'll take a little deep dive into uh, the forward group who are right at the top of the list. Reed Schaefer, Dylan Holloway, Xavier Borgo. They're at the top of the list with two other players, Stuart Skinner and Philip Brobery. So, um, but we'll just, we'll talk, we'll focus on the forwards today and take a little trip down memory lane with the Oilers in terms of their drafting forwards. Because they had kind of what I would call it a 20-year drought in terms of drafting forwards. Um, and we'll just think about these players in that context, you know, um, the difficulty of drafting top forwards what are this some of the reasons that went wrong in the past we'll also look at um specifically we'll look we'll try to answer one question of whether brett kulak or not can be expected to step into the top four and what we'll do we'll place that in the context of looking at other defensemen like kulak who have moved teams in that 20 to 20 22 to 28 kind of mid-career age group with the oilers either coming here or leaving here and how they've done in that context, you know, do many of them step up and become much better players in that group of players, players on the move. So this isn't players like Darnell Nurse who spend their whole career in one city and, and work their way up the pecking order. This is guys who who wear out their welcome for one reason or another in one city or two or three cities and then move on to uh, another city. And, how, you know, what what's the reasonable expectation for them? Um there's also an article uh, by a writer called Scott Maxwell in Daily Faceoff where he looks at the the value uh, on any particular of the all 32 NHL teams in terms of what kind of value are they getting on the contracts um, on that team. And he ranks the Oilers 31 out of 32 teams for value out of the contracts. And yeah, I see you're shaking your head there. So and and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get I'm trying it. to wrap my head around that one. It's it's freaking ridiculous is the truth. Like so, we'll start. You know, not the, the, that's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we're going to say, but um, it's hard to imagine how you can come up with that with a team that finished in the top four in the NHL last year. I mean, you're getting pretty good value if you make it that far in the playoffs. I guess it's it's all McDavid and it's all Drysaddle. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about that. Uh, anything else, Bruce? Oh, uh, the Oilers signed a Justin Bailey, Bailey. to a PTO. This week, um, have we talked about the Ryan Murray? Yes. Did we talk about that last week? Yes, we did. Okay. They signed Justin Bailey, a career NHL, AHL tweener, um, to a, we can start there. So he's uh, 27 years old, 6'4", 214 pounds. When you look at his penalty minute totals, you don't see someone who jumps out necessarily is playing an overly physical game, but he looks you know, he gets a few number of penalties every year. And he's played 82 NHL games. He's got nine points in those games. He's played in Buffalo, Philadelphia, Vancouver. And he's he's Bruce, he's he's not gonna be at camp. I guess he's injured. And he's not I don't think he's really he's more of like an AHL signing. Is he not? He's it's a PTO, so in theory, I guess he could 
earn an NHL contract. But at this point, yeah. this looks like a an AHL player, third or second line AHL player. Is that a fair comment? My understanding of what I heard yesterday is A, that he won't be able to be in camp and B, that he's signed an AHL contract already, but I have not had a chance to verify that. Okay. So he appears to be set for the uh, Bakersfield Condors and where he fits in on that team with all the young wingers that are going to go there and with guys like Seth Griffiths and probably Tyler Benson already in place as proven scoring wingers. I'm just not quite sure where he fits, but they're looking for some NHL depth. And I would submit they probably haven't really found it. Uh, with a guy who's played in seven NHL seasons, he's played at least two games in each of the last seven seasons, but his total career total is 82 games. Yeah. Five goals, four assists, nine points. So using my advanced math skills, I figure that his points per 82 is 9.000. It's <laughs> minus 11 and 18 PIM. So I'm not quite sure what he does. Uh, with an average of 9 minutes and 38 seconds ice time. So clearly a very much a depth player called up here and there and getting fourth line minutes and, and uh, probably not getting a lot of crunch time minutes. I, I honestly don't really get this signing, given the fact that they have uh, Benson and Seth Griffin, Griffith, Griffin, mm-hmm. they're already, um, you know... They they have all these young wingers looking for playing time. Mm-hmm. This it, it's like it's this kind of player who can take minutes. You know, he, so he increases the competition, mm-hmm. and um, he adds that aspect to the team. And and he might make the team more competitive. So the coach and the GM of the team look better because the team has more of a winning record. It, probably going with a veteran than going with kids. Because at the AHL level, he was he scored twenty seven points in thirty games last year. Okay. So this is a guy who who can get it done at the AHL level, but um, who's he taking ice time from? Yeah, and, and so why are you making this signing? I not, I guess you, you know, you know you, what the coaches in the gym down there would argue. Well, you got to increase the competition, and these young guys got to earn it. You can't have Xavier Borgo go in and just hand it to him, and Raphael Lavoie and just hand it to these guys. But on the other hand, we have seen instances in the past where players like this player have blocked players yeah. from getting ice time and uh, power play time. Like the, the the example that comes to mind, I if I'm not mistaken, I'll just check this out. I think Brad Hunt and Oscar Clefbaum were on the were in the AHL team at the same time, and Oscar yeah. Clefbaum eventually became a power player, yeah. a very good one for the Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. When he was in the AHL, I think, yeah, Brad Hunt ran the power play. Now, mm-hmm. that helped that AHL team, and it helped Todd Nelson, who was the coach then, have a better record than he otherwise would have. But it did it help Oscar Clefbaum's development to have Brad Hunt playing ahead of him on the power play. Wouldn't wouldn't that have been better off, that, that time used with Oscar Clefbaum out there in the end for his development? Now, they'd say, well, he wasn't ready for it then. Like, he didn't earn it and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. I don't love this signing for, for these reasons. But, uh, yeah, he played with Darnell Nurse on the uh, 2014-15 Sioux Greyhounds. And he's got some things in uh, in common with Nurse. Uh, 
Uh, he's a mixed race uh, fellow with a football playing dad and they had that in common. And there's some reports that their buddies or somebody maybe just inferred that they might be, might have been buddies. But I don't see how that really affects things this far out, especially if he's not even going to be at training camp. It's not an argument to sign a player that he's buddies with Darnell Nurse. No, so, no, yeah. No, I mean, there's there's some like distant association, but yeah, otherwise, you know. Yeah, anyway, you know, maybe yeah, there's a good score. reason. He, he scores at the HL level, and maybe there's, maybe, you know, you could say, well, we will, you know, th- these players won't have as tough a role, you know, like he'll, he'll play the hard minutes and blah, 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 and provide veteran leadership and there, was, there could be something to said for that. Like, there could be some really good reason for bringing this player in that I'm not aware of. So I'll, I will say that. But I just, a few alarm bells go off, uh, you know, when I when I see this kind of signing. I just think, yeah, you do need some of these players at the AHL level, but you do have Tyler Benson and, and Seth. Is it Griffith or Griffin? Griffith. 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 Um, you do have two players already. They, they're going to be, two, um, that's two of your slots on your right. top six, right? And on your mm-hmm. power play, probably. Yeah. Unless you're not going to give Benson and, and uh, Griffith those power play time. And that can happen too, right? You can decide we're, we're not going to give these guys the power play time. We're going to go and they'll just be, they'll be the second line wingers. They won't be the top. And it'll be Borgo who gets that ice time. So. Well, I'll, I'll draw a comparison to the uh, uh, Bakersfield, or sorry, Oklahoma City Barons of 2011-12 that were trying to break in three young, uh, fairly promising forwards at age 19 in Tyler Pitlick, uh, Curtis Hamilton, and Ryan Martindale. And they were playing behind a couple of guys like Ryan Keller and Josh Green, who got the minutes, got the points, you know, probably made the team a better team, but I would submit that uh, it did not help the the development of guys like uh, Pitlick and and uh, Hamilton, that at least one of them was sitting in the press box most nights and playing fourth minute line minutes on a lot of other nights. And what's the ultimate goal of the farm team would be my question. And my answer would be to develop NHL players first and to do so in a winning environment, if possible, second. So Seth Griffith, for instance, mm-hmm. is he's 28. And last year, he, he, he just tore up the AHL. That He's a fantastic year. player. 80 points in 64 games. So that mm-hmm. really helped that team along. Yes. And and there is something to be mm-hmm. said for... So there's something to be said for winning, right? Like yep. being in a winning environment mm-hmm. makes everything better for everybody. Mm-hmm. In, and and there's just no doubt about it. And he does increase the competition, having him setting the bar. And, and other players seeing a talented player like him mm-hmm. and him not in the NHL and thinking... A light probably goes on in your head then, like, wow, I gotta, I gotta think about this. If he didn't make it, how can I be different and make it? When yeah. Seth Griffith, who who's ripping this league to shreds, didn't make it, it's just clearly you just can't be a scorer. You got to do all kinds of stuff. So there can be all these different reasons to have these kind of players on your team. And Adam Cracknell was on the team last year. He was the third leading scorer, and he's like 36 and a, a veteran player who probably did lend a lot of veteran savvy and leadership so i'm not against you know having a a a roster rounded like this but and so maybe bailey replaces cracknell maybe that's the idea he's the new adam cracknell so but they they got lavoie they've got borgo they've got probably dylan holloway they might have dylan holloway 
um, because of cap reasons as much as anything. So, um, and then they got Benson coming back and he was only there for 18 games last year. So not sure. Anyway, let's, let's any other final thoughts on that or. Nope. All right, Bruce, let's talk about, um, well, we've been talking about Xavier Borgo. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, I was writing about, uh, Reed Schaefer, who was the Oilers, uh, first round pick this year, 32nd overall, mm-hmm. which in previous editions of the NHL wouldn't have made him a first round pick. That would have been outside the first round. Mm-hmm. So it just, uh, Reed Schaefer, he's, he's, uh, exciting prospect, big guy, physically dominant mm-hmm. at the Western Hockey League level, apparently has a yeah. fantastic shot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other teams at that level of play last year, he just came out of nowhere and started to dominate and other teams found him hard to deal with. And the owners are particularly excited about him because he does have this physical edge in an era where that's apparently harder to find with players. The owners also have right at the top of their uh, draft rankings, other first round picks who are forwards. They have Holloway, Dylan Holloway, who recovered from an injury, was out almost a full year, recovered from an injury and and played started to play really well in the AHL. And I heard Holloway interviewed on Oilers Now, and he talked about he he was playing with pain and injury when he did come back, and it gradually got better. And by the playoffs, he finally felt he was getting close to where he was and shooting without pain, like shooting the puck without pain. But he he couldn't take faceoffs, for instance. Right. They had him on the wing, and they have Xavier Borgo, who was just an outstanding offensive hockey player at the Quebec League last year. Took his team mm-hmm. to the Memorial Cup final. Uh, built on his great draft year, you know, just had had a points per game, which is indi- indicative of, of a real talent, possibility of a real talent. Not a, not a sure thing, obviously. So with all these forwards, I was just thinking, like, when was the last time they had so many forwards uh, at the top of the list? And, and how does this usually work out? And I have to say, like, as an Oiler fan, um, you know, there's always that moment. There's often that moment, I should say, of of a little bit of PTSD about things that have gone badly wrong in the past uh, with the Oilers, because we did have a pretty rotten 30 year period with the franchise. <laughs> and and one of the things that went wrong, Bruce, and this is for, for fans of a certain vintage, as you and I are, this really is. It's hard to forget this, and this is this terrible kind of draft spell that the Oilers went through from about from about 83 to the late 2000s until they started to get all these top draft picks, Taylor Hall coming their way. And there was about, when it comes to forwards, there was about what I would call a 20-year drought of forwards. And in that time, they expended, I think it was <coughs> 21 first-round draft picks. What what would be considered first-round draft picks today in the mm-hmm. top 32? They they you they had thirty they had twenty one of those picks in that time, and um, seven of those players became pretty good NHLers. Two of them, um, Ryan Smith <coughs> and Jason Arnott became and oh three of them and Alice Hensky became outstanding NHLers. Yeah. Um, and there were some other good players in there: George Larocque, Andre Cogliano, Tyler Wright. Martin Rachinsky, Boyd Devereaux, all became very useful players at the NHL level. Mm-hmm. But for every one guy that panned out, there was two guys who flopped and didn't make an impact at all at the NHL, even if they made the NHL. And so, so I was looking. I just was looking at this and trying to see if there was any commonalities in in how they failed. 
you know, one of the things that stands out is the Oilers were drafting at that time. They were a pretty good team for much of that time, and they weren't drafting in the top 10. Only right. two of the guys who failed, Jason Bonsignor and Steve Kelly, both both big centers, um, were drafted in the top 10. Bonsignor mm-hmm. fourth overall and Steve Kelly sixth overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if there was one commonality, it looked like they a lot of them were bigger wingers, who are drafted as much for their size as their skill. And that would include, like, they drafted a lot of really big guys. 6'5", Alexei Miknov. 6'4", Kim Issel, Scott Allison, and Jason Bonsignor. 6'3", Peter Soberlach. Joe, Joe Hulbig, who was known as Joe Big. 6'2", Mike Watt, Steve Kelly, Michael Reeson, Michael Henrik, Yessi Ninamaki, and Marc-Antoine Pouliot. And a couple solid six-footer types, Yanni Rita and Scott Metcalf. So they they did seem to be drafting for, they were looking for bigger players and sometimes rugged players. And it seemed like the more big and rugged you were, the less chance you were going to have a make in it, like Scott Allison and Joe Big. So now I don't know if that's, that still holds today, if that, that trend would still hold, if that's what you're looking for um, and you're expending a first-round draft pick, that's not a good idea, that you should really just be going for skill, skill, skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the top of the draft with like, you know, when you draft Kyler mm-hmm. Yamamoto, right? Everyone was happy because they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't draft that bigger player. They drafted the skill player. Seems right. to be working out so far. Anyway, what are your, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Dude? Well, I'd submit that um, uh, Xavier Burgo is a skill player. For sure. Uh, Reed Schaefer is a big guy uh, who certainly has some skill and Dylan Holloway, you can make a case on both fronts. Like he, he certainly, uh, projects as a, a very good grinder, uh, you know, useful uh, multi-purpose player. Uh, and how high his skill level is, I mean, it's non-zero, let's put it that way. He's not Joe Hulbig, right? <laughs> he's not uh, He's not uh, Scott Allison or, or uh, man, just so many of them. Just so of the players who didn't make it, Holloway's mm-hmm. skill set would probably be, be closest to Steve Kelly, or uh, Mark Antoine Pouliot, although Pouliot was more of, well, Holloway's an incredible skater, mm-hmm. and so was Steve Kelly. Like Steve Kelly mm-hmm. was a was yep. a very very fast skater. Yeah. So so you know, and, and you just never know, mm-hmm. like because the injury plays such a huge part. Part mm-hmm. now of the players who made it, they didn't owners really didn't other than Jason Arnott, who was a, just a huge powerful center. Yeah. Um, and I don't really think Holloway, Holloway doesn't have that kind of size. Oh, uh, that Arnott did. So he's 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 Kelly would be the closest, I think, in terms of a of a skill set, a big a really big guy who can really skate. Holloway does have a tremendous amount of skill, and utterly dominated before his injury, Bruce. He was he was so dominant at the NCAA level. The you know it wasn't just a, like an an up arrow. It was like triple yeah. up. You know it was yeah. like man that pick he just took off. And then he yeah. got injured. So uh, an injury always plays yeah. a huge factor. He's big. He's fast. He's all over the puck. He can play center. He can play wing. He tracks the puck in both directions. Like there's a whole lot of things to like about his fundamental game. And yeah. he, he looked like a can't miss. And then he went and did that whatever happened to his scaphoid. And that really set him back with two surgeries. And 
he's saying now I can shoot the puck without pain, but that his range of motion and sort of normal life things is still not 100%. And you wonder if that's going to take, a, you know, 5% off his shot, which is, you know, potentially that's the difference between 20 goals and 12 goals. You know, I mean, you need, to, you need every bit of zip you can get on that to beat NHL class defensemen and goalies. One player who did make it out of that group, who actually does remind me a little bit, except in the size categories, Tyler Wright, who mm-hmm. drafted Dylan Holloway. Mm-hmm. Tyler Wright was a very fast, extremely fast and somewhat skilled. He was, you know, at the junior level, he was really skilled, uh, kind of two-way center and mm-hmm. pesky and aggressive. And that's kind of how Holloway uh, is going to fit into the lineup, I think. I mean, you can see him projecting as a third-line center at the NHL level with his size and speed and, and uh, talent stack or um, even higher than that. But so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And I, and I, as for Reed Schaefer, I can't say I haven't seen him play. So I, I I'm just going on the scouting reports, but people do love this guy's shot. Like he does mm-hmm. have some offensive talent and mm-hmm. it's, and it is a different era, right? Like, you know, there might be something said for if it, if, if it's really hard to find a player who is physically intimidating, and you have a chance to draft one, it might be something mm-hmm. to think about. So, Well, he, he had 88 penalty minutes, which is sort of one very rough barometer for physicality, uh, which was second on the team. Like, you don't have all, you know, it used to be, you'd look at the junior teams, and there'd be eight guys with triple-digit penalty minutes. Well, you don't see that anymore. Uh, and because, of course, largely fighting and mostly misconducts have gone out of the game. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's clearly a rugged player. You don't get to 88 uh, by pussy, pussyfooting around. Uh, and uh, he's, I mean, he's huge. He's the same size as Joe Hulvick, right? <laughs> 6'3", 215. Uh, I did see him play a little bit in the Western Hockey League finals against the Oil Kings. Yeah. And I wasn't specifically scouting the player. Mostly I was watching a game from an Oil Kings perspective. Uh, but he was a load, and he was they were having trouble handling the guy, is my recollection of it. Like, he just kept, you know, just driving the net and showing up around the crease and and uh, giving, the, giving the defenseman all they could handle and sometimes more. And uh, so he didn't quite come out from left field in the, in the draft. But uh, uh, you look at his career so far. The 32 goals he scored last year in the WHL represents the entire output of his career in that league. He had two part, you know, well, two partial seasons because, of course, COVID has messed everything up. With zero goals and three assists in 26 games, and then all of a sudden last year he bursts out with a 32-goal, 58-point season, and even better in the playoffs. And uh, you know, he's maybe one of those big guys that, you know, it takes a while to figure things out and you can expect more of the same when he hits the pros and more and more of the, that same when he hits the Oilers. And it might be he's 24 years old before he's, uh, we really know what we've got. But uh, there are uh, there certainly are some positive arrows with uh, Schaefer. And, and with Borgo, like, this, this, like the small amount that I've seen Xavier Borgo play, Mm-hmm. He just looked fantastic to me, Bruce. He looked like um, he's quite aggressive on the puck, and he's got a good stick for winning it. And then when he gets the puck, he's it's just he's he's very reminiscent of Jordan Eberle. Like it's it sticks to his stick, and he makes moves and can get off a good shot. And and um, you know has a lot of the attributes of of an Eberle who be 
became a very, you know, he's been mm-hmm. a top six forward in the NHL for a decade. That would be um, pretty good if Borgo could achieve that. So I, uh, he is, he's a very talented hockey player. And uh, he had some injury problems again last year as well, but. Yeah, he did. He, uh, he got, uh, uh, he got a stick in the eye in November. It only cost him one game and, and uh, uh, that he was off the ice, but apparently he was not right for a little while. And then he went to, uh, he missed time to go to Team Canada's camp for the World Juniors, and then he played one game here in Edmonton and uh, took a knock in the head, missed the second game. Then the tournament got abandoned. Uh, so he spent quite a bit of time uh, off his skates. He got back to uh, Quebec and he played one or two games, and then he got some kind of core body injury, which has never really been specified, but uh, he missed about six weeks. And then when he came back um, uh, from that, he was uh, he was good, and he you know right through the playoffs, good, and and right in the Memorial Cup, excellent. Like you know they went on a big run. He wound up scoring 50 goals last year, counting you know right through the Memorial Cup, 54 assists in uh, in 63 games, like fantastic scoring titles. Some of that was probably. Um, uh, he got a push uh, from playing on the same team and same power play as Maverick Bork, who's an excellent prospect. That was a yeah. first round pick last year. Um, but uh, a lot on its own merit. I, I, in writing the post yesterday, I watched uh, the semifinal game from the Memorial Cup uh, that I had recorded <clears throat> specifically to watch him. And I, I'm just really impressed with his quick decision-making, his ability when he gets the puck to distribute, you know, very good at sort of the five-foot pass, but releasing it at the right moment, making the right decision, finding the right teammate, dishing the puck to him where he's got some time to do something with it. And then uh, when he doesn't have the puck, he's uh, pretty good at showing up in, in good positions to shoot. And, you know, he just kind of disappears and then all of a sudden he's got the puck on the stick and he's letting fly. And there's some really nice offensive instincts in there. Now, I took the, uh, this is admittedly a stretch, but that he uh, was drafted with the number 22 overall draft pick. And he he's the fourth oiler uh, to be picked in that position in the last, in this century. Yeah, uh, including Mark Pouliot, Jordan Everly, who you mentioned already, Kyle Yamamoto, who we mentioned earlier, all of them right shot, offensive minded, at least in junior uh, forwards. The other three all became NHLers with uh, Pouliot kind of flopping out before, earlier than you would have hoped. Everly becoming a consistent scorer for 12 years now and Yamamoto uh too soon to know exactly what they've got, but Arrow's pointing out, I mean, he just signed a $3 million contract and coming off a 20-goal season. I mean, clearly he's an NHL-caliber player. And I looked at their junior careers, and uh, Borgo stacked up very nicely to, to the other ones. All four of them uh, played uh, uh, from age 16 to 19 in the uh, uh, in, in juniors, uh, two of them in the dub, two of them in the queue. And each of them became over a point of game scorer in their second year, and they just kept ramping up and ramping up 18, 19, uh, to where they were a point and a half or more per game scorers by their final year. 
And I'll pick the middle ground of the three and say Yamamoto is sort of the likeliest career curve that he'll follow. I, th- I don't think he'll get rushed to the NHL, and, you know, unless he just goes crazy in training camp. And, you know, I mean, he's he's on an ELC, so he's a cheap player. He's got skill. Maybe they'll be needing help at right wing, especially if they have to move on from Yesipoli-Arvey to sign their, uh, to solve their salary cap issues. Uh, but I saw some defensive weaknesses, uh, just um, not tracking the right guy hard all the way back. And I think that's stuff that will be worked on in the minor leagues that uh, uh, he needs to work on. And I'm sure that's been identified and recognized as a uh, as an area of need. But guess what? He's a 19-year-old kid. And guess what? Most of them have issues like that, especially, the, you know, the offense first guys. And so I, I'm... Uh, uh, pretty bullish on Burgos' chances in the uh, uh, in the long uh, in the long run and the, the intermediate run. I don't think we can count on him this year, but soon. Yeah, he. You'd expect him to play at least half a year in the yes. AHL, and if he just rips it up down there, which is a possibility, right? Like he mm-hmm. he could be right off right out of the hop. He could be a point of game player at the AHL level. I mean, Tyler Benson came close to doing that right in his in his uh first season in the ahl Mm -hmm. so um and borgo was a better player than tyler benson ever was like he's just he's a better skater he's a better shooter and he's Mm -hmm. he's a similar kind of passer so uh and tyler benson's a fantastic passer of the puck so we could see him play half a year down there and Mm -hmm. if the orders are in need he could be an Edmonton order this year it's not out of the question and and with wingers, you know, if a, if you're going to be a scoring winger, a lot of those guys develop pretty quickly. It's it's um, that talent comes early to players. They, the ability to make offensive plays, and uh, so yeah, we could see them sooner than later. And defensive issues on the wing are are a more expected and b less costly. Like they sure wingers are. are tend to be further from the net, and defensive mistakes become more costly than closer they occur to your own net on on balance uh everly who's one in the comparison group uh he went right into the nhl at age 20 coming out of his four-year junior career but he had two nine game trials with uh oklahoma city uh he was on a weak junior team so they didn't go far in the playoffs so he went to oklahoma city and both times he scored a point a game down in Oklahoma City. So that was his equivalent of that half season down in uh, mm-hmm. the minors. He already had it under his belt when he came to his uh, uh, first uh, training camp, as a, you know, as knowing he wasn't going back to junior anymore. And he just made the NHL, scored that brilliant, unforgettable goal in his, in his NHL debut, and he was off to the races. So... Yeah, in his first AHL season, Benson had 66 points in 68 games. Yep. So, and and that was really remarkable, and that's why people were very excited about Tyler Benson's career at that time. Like, as a possible top six NHL winger, and and in the end, I think it's fair to say the skating hasn't been there. Like, it's just it, when you watch him in the NHL games, that's mm-hmm. been um that's been what's holding him back. Skating on the shot, just 15 yeah. of those 66 points were goals, yeah. and he was he was a playmaker. But you know there was there was holes in his game, and I would I would submit that there probably still are. And, and uh, finishing touch and skating, those are two pretty important issues. Indeed. 
Indeed. All right, Bruce, let's move on to discuss Brett Kulak. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's um, right now, he's the fourth. He's penciled in 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 the top four, I think. It's Mm -hmm. fair to say he's going to be expected. Um, Even, you know, even with the sign of Ryan Murray, who's played in the top four in the NHL in the past. But I think Kulak is expected. Uh, right now to be in the top four. We don't know who he would be paired with necessarily. If they go with CC Nurse again in the top pairing, uh, Kulak could be with uh, Bouchard or Barry, I guess, in the second pairing. Last year in the playoffs, they kind of went with a top pairing of Nurse and CC, and then kind of two pairings who were kind of indistinguishable. Like they, they had similar usage and playing time, if I'm not mistaken. You know, Keith and Bouchard and Barry and Kulak were both kind mm-hmm. of who was the second pair? Who was the third pair? There, it was kind of similar usage, probably. And, and we might see that again with this heavy reliance on Nurse and CC against tough competition. And then two two pairings who are who are used in kind of similar fashion. But Kulak, you know, he, he is right now second on the depth chart. If Nurse was to go out, I think he would be bumped up into the... He would be expected then to be the top pairing left shot demon. So, you know, I've been... Based on his really strong play in the playoffs, I was kind of... Thinking, yeah, mm-hmm. and based on Cody Cece's, you know, rapid development in not just into a solid top four D man, but in played well in the top pairing. I was thinking, yeah, Kulak could do the same. Like maybe the orders like lightning will strike twice here, and we'll get two years in a row. We'll get these players coming in, at, you know, whatever Kulak is twenty seven or twenty eight. We'll get these players coming in at that age, and um, we'll get this rapid development where they they really do well in a top four role. So that had me thinking, is that a reasonable thing to think? Mm-hmm. You know, what is that a reasonable expectation or is that kind of motivated thinking on the part of an Oilers fan such as I am? Uh, so, Bruce, what's your what's your thought on this? What do you think of his potential to be a solid top four D man? Uh, 20, well, he's not, 28. Yeah, he's 28, be 29 midseason. Yeah, he's... Um, uh, he, his pedigree is third pairing, if not sort of six seven guy. Uh, all of his career, like last year, uh, between Montreal and Edmonton, he averaged 17 minutes and 45 seconds per game, yeah. and that's pretty stat. Like his career average is 16.05. Like that's third pairing minutes all the way. With the Oilers, he was 17.05, and in the playoffs, 17.06. So it's not like they hugely elevated his role in the playoffs. Other than that one game in in uh, L.A. when Nurse was suspended, uh, that said, he did form a very effective partnership with uh, Tyson Berry. That I, for one, would be reluctant to break up, even as they're going to have to figure out how to how best to deploy uh, the other defensemen. Do you want a Bouchard to Brobery pairing? You know, it's a is the question, or do you want to maybe put uh, uh, do Nurse and CC different this year? But uh, uh, they uh, uh, he played well. What he showed well, particularly, was in his skating and in his ability to disrupt opposing attacks before they gained his own. He was sort of the anti Duncan Keith, who was who was, uh, or the anti-Chris Russell, who would give up the blue line and try and do their defending closer to the net. And uh, Kulak, uh, with his mobility, is uh, very good at uh, at uh, stopping the rush early in the process and at least forcing the shoot in or 
you know, if not stopping it outright. Uh, so some promising signs there, but the jump from uh, third pairing to second at age 28, that's a tall ask. Maybe he's ready. I mean, I, I saw lots more that I would call promising last year than I saw as red flags. But if they're counting on him as being in the top four, they better be right. <laughs> so what I noticed, so I, I was thinking about this and I thought, well, let's look at, <clears throat> let's do a kind of a back of the envelope survey, like not super science here. This is just kind of based on my impressions of these players. And this is mm -hmm. up for argument, my rating of them. But mm -hmm. I thought, let's look at players who have come to Edmonton between the ages of about 22 and 28, kind of this mid-career defenseman who, who might step up and be a better player. So this isn't like, we're not looking at the, the career tra trajectories of a player like, again, like Darnell Nurse or Oscar Clefbaum, mm -hmm. these defensemen who come in as high picks and gradually work their way up from farm system right. or, you know, to third pairing, second, like it's it's ex almost expected of them. These are players, aren't, they're not like this. This is a different category of players. Some of them would have been high picks, but they, for one reason or another, the team that drafted them has, has decided to move on and is willing to move them out for one reason mm -hmm. or another. So this is the class of player. So it's it's down a peg from the, the the very top drawer guys who tend to populate the top four in the NHL. Guys like like um, Nurse and Evan Bouchard is the latest example in Edmonton. And I was thinking, how many of those players come in and do better? They move up from the bottom bottom pairing or below that and become top four D men for the Edmonton Oilers. And in the forty year history of the franchise, Bruce. Of all the different players, and there's usually one or two coming in each year in this category, I only found four that kind of jumped, made a jump, either from top four to top pairing or bottom pairing to top four. And they were Jason Smith and Craig Muni, who both came in at age 24. Mm -hmm. Igor Kravchuk, who came in at age 26 mm -hmm. and had a really good year here in Edmonton. Uh, before getting moved out. You know, so many players were moved out for salary reasons in those days. And then, and Cody Cece last year. So there's four guys in that entire span who I saw who really obviously stood out as what we're hoping for to happen to Kulak. And um, a lot of the players, uh, some came in and got worse almost immediately, like Mark Fain and Nikita Nikitin. They, they had played top four in other cities and they just, really stunk on it, like if I'm completely honest here in Edmonton. But the most common thing by far, Bruce, the most common thing by far was what I call the same, same syndrome. Mm -hmm. And as I was making my list, I just had a category. They were basically the same here as they were elsewhere. And when they left Edmonton, they were the same as elsewhere as they were in Edmonton. So I just, same, same. So this is the same, same syndrome. And with player after player after player, you saw this. And with, so whether they were kind of third line, bottom pairing guys who weren't very good, mm -hmm. that's how they remained in another NHL city. They didn't mm -hmm. move. Or if they were really good, they stayed really good. So like in the really good category would be like Norm McIver, really good here in Edmonton. And when he went to Ottawa, really good still until he got injured. Ray Hurutsalainen, and really good in other places, really good here. Ryan Whitney. Before he got hurt in Edmonton, he was really good in other NHL cities. He was really good here before he got hurt. Paul Coffey, Luke Richardson, kind of a big defensive D-man here. Same elsewhere. Jeff Bukaboom. So again, it's, and then this this also applies to players who are lower down the list, like Martin Marinson, Jeff Smith, you know, um, Matt Benning. 
these kind of Chris Joseph, these third line, third pairing kind of guys or mm-hmm. seventh demon on their teams, they remain the same in other cities as well and they, as they were in Edmonton. So this is the most likely thing that's going to happen. If you go by the generalities, I think, of NHL hockey, um, Brett Kulak will be very similar to what he was in other cities uh, this year at Edmonton. He's going to be that same kind of player, which is kind of a, you know, at, at best, the number five. Mm-hmm. Someone who can step up for a while into a top four role. But if you're really ex- banking on that, um, if you go by the general rule, you're hoping for too much. Now, I should say there's a category of players who were better elsewhere after they left Edmonton. No. And there's a number of those, Greg DeVries, mm-hmm. Dan McGillis, Matt Green, Jan Haida, uh, Marty McSorley, Jeff Petrie is one that really stands out. And then there was some who were worse elsewhere, who were good in Edmonton, and then they, they fell off in other cities like Laddie, Laddie Smead, Dennis Grebikov, Eric Brewer, uh, Yanni Ninema. Often, though, the players who really fell off elsewhere, it's because mm-hmm. of injury. Right. I think that's a, a common denominator. The better elsewhere, th- these were tend to be skilled players who were undervalued at Edmonton because they weren't rugged enough, and like Petrie, and they were moved on. And like Tom Pete, Pody, and Tom Pody would be another example of that. They were moved on because they weren't deemed to be rugged enough, and mm-hmm. um, then they went to another NHL city and they were accepted for what they were, and they and they did very well for a, for a number of years. So anyway, Kulak, I think is going to. I still have my fingers crossed, Bruce, but that was a little bit of a sobering exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll add to your list names like uh, uh, Roman uh, Hammerlick and uh, Yanni Ninema, Adam Larson, who came across in their, you know, mid-20s. In fact, I think Ninema was 22 when they got him. Uh, but it wasn't like they made a big surge forward the way Jason Smith did. They were, you know, fairly established, and they came yeah. to Edmonton and kept doing what they'd been doing. Uh Eric Brewer, he'd be another guy to, to consider that was acquired by trade, who who yeah. I think grew in Edmonton into a, a fairly substantial player. Uh, so I mean, these are top four caliber defensemen, all those guys I just named, but they basically were that before they arrived. It was Jason Smith yeah. and Craig Muni. They were having trouble getting a game in Toronto, for goodness sake. Uh, yeah. Toronto wasn't very good. And uh, they came here and they both wasted very little time in establishing that not only were they NHL players, but they were good ones that could move into and, uh, you know, play a key role in the top four. And in a perfect world, that's what you're looking for from uh, from Brett Kulak, uh, who from the age perspective is at the outer limits of your, you know, of your range. Yeah. Um, so it's. Uh, it's later in his career, but that said, he's a you know more more mature guy, ready for the challenge. I, I, you know, I do have high hopes for the guy, but I, you got You got to you got to sort of temper hope with uh, experience. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. experience as a fan, as opposed to the experience of the player himself. We've seen too many cases where I thought, man, does this guy ever look good? And then turns out, well, you know. This Terrence Sandwith guy, you know, I mean, he may have, we might have thought he had potential, but. Uh, <laughs> Terrence Sandwith. Sorry, sorry Terrence. He wasn't even on my list. Came out of the blue, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you know, CC, and even with CeCe, like he, he, you know, truth be told, he was a top 
pairing defenseman at Ottawa. He wasn't particularly mm-hmm. well respected in the end. And then he went to Toronto, and, it, and it's funny what happened in Toronto because that's where his reputation really took a hit. For mm-hmm. some reason, he just got on the wrong side. I think of essentially mainly the analytics crowd in Toronto. I'm not exactly sure, but I think that's the case. And and they took a real dislike to the player. And his reputation took such a hit that when he arrived at Edmonton, there was that hangover from that and very low expectations, I think, because of that. That said, when he when he went to Pittsburgh the year before, he had worked his way into the top four there by the end of the year. And mm-hmm. when you read all the accounts... Um, people liked his play. Like when they were just eyeballing him and not looking at these, you know, various numbers, um, you know, that people put a lot of weight in. Uh, some people do. They they thought, hey, this Cody Ceci is not a bad hockey player. That was the general consensus out of Pittsburgh. And I mean, certainly this last year in Edmonton, he he played, he was a really strong hockey player. And, and I think he's going to remain that. Like, I don't think it was like, oh. if he stays healthy, Bruce, I don't see why Cody mm-hmm. Ceci is going to get any worse in the next few years. So that, that really did work out and it could, if he continues to put up these numbers, he will be in the, the rare Jason Smith, Craig Muni category of, of a player who's come here under a bit of a cloud at least. And, um, really from Toronto, really, really <laughs> performed from Toronto. Maybe that's the commonality. Get these guys who get run out of Toronto where they can't tell a good hockey player from a, um, hole on the wall. Wow. So, uh, yeah, Kulak, I have high hopes too. Like I, I just thought he, he he got better as it went as he went along mm-hmm. in Edmonton. He mm-hmm. got better as the playoffs went along. He was he was strong. He's filled in for Nurse really well that one game. So um we'll see how that goes. And Tyson Barry also took a step up last year yes, at a did. you know an advanced age in his NHL mm-hmm. career. Uh he started to play solid defensive mm-hmm. hockey. Both of them did. So maybe the Oilers have a scouting staff scouting staff capable of recognizing this kind of player and bringing them on a, bringing them in on a regular basis if so that would be fan freaking tastic if that's the case it's 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 hard to find a player who's going to step up like that that's for sure especially uh on the free agent market that's affordable you know, in, cc four years at that three and a quarter that's a pretty solid looking contract at this point in time all right, Bruce, I think we're in the final item on our list, which is um, the Daily Faceoff has mm. published a list of NHL team salary cap rankings. The, the salary cap rankings kick off with a mix of really rebuilding teams, clearing out their bad deals and aging playoff teams on their last limbs before a cap implosion. And that's mm. apparently where the Edmonton Oilers are. They're, they are apparently a aging playoff team on their last limb before a cap implosion, according to writer Scott Maxwell of the uh, Daily Faceoff. Because Maxwell has the orders ranked when it t- comes to the cap value of their, their value of their money, he has them ranked 31 out of 32 teams in the NHL. The only team he's got worse than the Oilers in terms of getting cap value is the Chicago Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. And Bruce, I'm just going to say, I just think this is nonsense. I mean, mm-hmm. the Oilers were a top four team in the NHL last year. Right. Um, they were right up against the cap, but so were so were most of the playoff teams. Seems to me they got pretty good value, one way or another, mm-hmm. out of their out of their salary cap. And I don't know how you can how you can come up with a list and, and think that's that's accurate. That's fair and accurate. That's a fair and accurate evaluation of the Oilers. Mm-hmm. To have them 31 out of 32 teams, 
Um, this was a good regular season team. It was a better playoff team. Mm-hmm. I get his point. Like, I think it's a fair comment to say the Oilers have invested a lot of money, long-term deals in players heading into their 30s, and that's that could go bad. Um, you know, they, you know, Zach Hyman signed a long-term deal into his late into his mid 30s. Vander Kane, same thing. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, same thing. Uh, Darnell Nurse, same thing. Jack Campbell, same thing. You're counting on all of these players performing at a, at a near peak level into their mid 30s if they're going to re, you know realize their cap potential, live up to their contracts. That is asking a lot. We know that that often doesn't go well. And I think that's a, f- a fair assessment of some of the contracts on the Oilers. Um, nonetheless, Bruce, I mean, he apparently had Leon Dreisaitl's contract right now. Leon Dreisaitl right now as a bad contract. Because according to his uh, system of value, evaluation of players, both Leon Dreisaitl and Sidney Crosby aren't elite hockey players in the NHL. And you have to rate their contracts then as bad contracts. I'm going to say that that doesn't pass the smell test. And if you're a if you're a writer, and you have a system of player evaluation that tells you that Leon Dreisaitl and Sidney Crosby aren't elite players, you need to seriously rethink your system of evaluation because yeah. something's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. It's not working. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So he says. Table. He says. Yeah. He says one in his introduction to his system. The system can be picky and will lead to a few instances that differ from normal opinions. Some that I don't always agree with either. Players like Sidney Crosby or Leon Draisaitl end up with bad contracts because some of their stats are bad enough to drag them from elite to first line forward, even though they make elite player money. So he's got 32 forwards listed as elite, and they don't make the top 32, even though they're in the top 32 for contract. And I would submit that a guy that's been in the top four scorers for four years running and in that span has scored more than 50 more points than any other NHL or not named Connor McDavid. To me, that's an elite player, you know. And uh, the fact that he's actually listed on the bad list, well, that's a, that's a bit of a tell. Uh, the, uh, there, there's a couple of things. like I, I, There's a big picture at the top of the article, NHL team salary cap rankings, number 32 to 25, and there's a picture of Darnell Nurse, standalone picture without anybody else even in the frame, as being singled out. Uh, He begins his thing on the Oilers, saying there are three inevitable things in life, death, taxes, and Ken Holland struggling in the salary cap era. So, and there's just a couple other peculiar things in here that have me shaking my head. For instance, in the San Jose Sharks comment, he says uh, they're in a better spot than last summer thanks to Evander Kane being enough of a chaotic human being for the Sharks to erase his deal with no penalties. First of all, we don't know about the no penalties part because they're taking forever to resolve that thing. But secondly, like that just seemed like a bit of a gratuitous shot. Uh and then for the Oilers, to get back to the comment on the Oilers, when you have players like Zach Hyman, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Evander Kane, Darnell Nurse, Cody Ceci, and Jack Campbell all signed for at least three years, and according to my contract rating system, to too much money does not help their case. And uh, Ceci is the only player not to have a no-move clause, which, you know, that's a good point. 
but he's got his system is well first of all we have already some issues with the uh contracts and how they're i mean as i recall eric carlson was mentioned as having a good contract i'd rather have darnell nurse than eric carlson right now right now Anyway, he's got six different categories. Good contract percentage, the orders are 20th. Quality cheap deals, 30th. Now, Ryan McLeod will be on that list, but he's not there right now. Uh, contracts with no trade or no move clauses, 21st. Dead cap space, and this is one I've been pounding on for years and I agree with, 26th. Quality of core, 18th. Cap space oh. to skill differential, 24th. The orders are the only team on this list that are in the bottom half of the NHL in all of the listed categories. And I just find that stunning. Like, how the hell did you finish second in your division three years in a row, make a run in the playoffs the most recent year, and you've got, you're in the bottom half of the league and everything? And well, this is the narrative that Connor McDavid drives it all, right? Like, that he... He he's so great that he he lifts up this this horrible team, and uh, this team is now doomed because you can't build around McDavid because you have all of these uh, deadweight contracts. You know, to to have Cody Cece, if he doesn't think Cody Cece is a contract a good contract, the way Cody Cody Cece w- played strong hockey in a top pairing role and top four role all last year on an NHL average contract. He's two or three million dollars a year underpaid last year. And he, he's still in the prime of his career. I mean that's just yeah. it's not that's it's nonsense, Bruce, that that's not seen as a good contract. That is a very good contract. Maybe a great contract. Just like Darnell Nurse was last year. If you go by last year, Darnell Nurse was underpaid. He, he was a top pairing NHL D man through the regular season, and he's paid what was it, five point eight million dollars? Five point six, yeah. Five point six. He was underpaid by two or three million dollars last year, mm-hmm. so he's not going forward. But to have him as the poster boy for the worst teams in the NHL for worst value, have Darnell Nurse up there. I mean, Dom Lecision went down the same pass pass uh, path with Nurse. Um, mm-hmm suggesting his his contract is bad and it, and it who knows it might be but darnell nurse is a number one d-man in the nhl right yes, now yes. he played again the toughest competition of nhl any nhl d-man last year and he had pretty good results mm-hmm. um that's that's not bad uh he's he's a he's a he's he's a strong puck mover he he mm-hmm. puts up points at even strength darnell nurse does he's a he's a he's a good defensive player against such tough competition so this focusing on nurse's contract it seems a little premature for one thing let's see how he does this year in the next few years now that he's finally getting paid like this because he has been in he has been a true number one defenseman in the nhl for two or three years now and he he should be for the next two or three years as well he's not going to be off team uh, on a really good playoff team so Last year, in the bottom half of the league team. Now, he, he says that doesn't mean the team doesn't have good contracts. as players like McDavid, Kyler Yamamoto, Yesipul Yarby, Derek Ryan, and Brett Kulak are on some sweet deals. Not three names before he gets into Hyman, Nuge, Kane, etc. And then when he's looking at the cheap deals, I mean, this is where I'm lost. The orders have just two players signed to cheap deals that are considered above replacement level. And the two players he names are Brad Malone and Slater Cuckoo. And I'm just looking at that and going, what? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so this is, anyway. This is it, modern hockey science, Bruce. Modern, this, oh, this, yeah. this, 
this is why the analytics community people look at it and think you guys come on it's you're not you're not passing the smell test you've got to you've got to do better you've got to do better than this if you if you want to take your analysis to be treated seriously mm-hmm. you've got to do better because it's not holding up uh to to what's going on on the ice to what's actually happening on the ice leon Dreisettle's contract is mm-hmm. one of the best contracts in the nhl it's mm-hmm. not a bad contract so if you're trying to tell me that you have you you've lost your credibility yeah. you don't have it's gone so think hard about your system mm-hmm. before you put this out in the public right. because if it doesn't pass the smell test that's that's <laughs> that aroma hangs around everything else you say about every other player when you get it so badly wrong on a player like dry settler crosby or cc right. um Anyway. Well, you have to be prepared to be flexible. And I mean, we're talking about the quality of competition and people these days uh, tend to use the uh, system developed by Puck IQ about elite opponents. Yeah. Now, it so happens uh, the fellows running Puck IQ are, are friends of mine, Darcy and Ganesh, uh, or as they're known on Twitter, Wood Guy and uh, Oilers Nerd Alert uh, that are running it. And they use the statistical base to establish who's elite and who's not. And by their statistical base, Patrick Kane uh, was not an elite player because his underlying numbers are, are weird. And they don't capture the player. And they recognized that and they said, no, we, Patrick Kane is an elite player by all observational scoring, everything else. We are unilaterally declaring him an elite player even though our own system uh, doesn't recognize him as such. The system is wrong. He's an elite player, and they are correct in that assessment. Buddy here needs to do that with Sidney Crosby. <laughs> Sidney Crosby and Leon Dreisaitl, you know, come on. If they're not elite players, your system is broken, or there is an exception that's about those players that you need to recognize, whether it's a shooting percentage thing, whether, you know, whether they make up for some flaws in, the, in their game by being super exceptional at other levels or maybe power play which doesn't seem to have a whole lot of uh, uh, get a whole lot of play in his underlying numbers where uh, Leon just broke Wayne Gretzky's franchise record for power play goals you know I mean typically what (laughs) these systems will get wrong Bruce like as a general criticism they don't put enough emphasis on point scoring overall point scoring for 60 minutes of NHL play if you just go by point scoring for NHL forwards Per 60 minutes. And then you, which is a huge thing for NHL, NHL forward, how many points they put up. It's the most important thing they do is scoring points. It's the biggest thing they do. It's what separates the superstars from the next here, from the first line players and the first line players from the second. It's how well they score points. If you don't put enough weight in that. Mm-hmm. And then a, another thing you can put some weight in is time on ice per game played how much is their coach entrusting them with ice time? How much ice time are they earning according to their mm-hmm. coach whose job depends on winning? Like who, who has all the incentives to put the right players on the ice and play the best players the most. I, I put some weight in that. And if you, and if you balance those two things, Bruce, because yeah. I did a, a back of the envelope survey, like this isn't the high science hockey science that these guys are involved in just the back of the envelope thing mm-hmm. that I did. My top 10 when you mm-hmm. rate those two things, 
Number one player forward in the NHL last year, Connor McDavid. Number two, Leon Dreisaitl. Number three, Austin Matthews. Number four, Nathan McKinnon. Number five, Mitch Marner. Number six, JT Miller. Number seven, Nikita Kucherov. After that, it's Rantanen, then Barkov, then Patrick Kane. Jeez, hmm. not bad. Just keep simple. That, that passes the smell test. That's a simple system of rating hockey players that passes the smell test. Just, just, you don't, and I understand, Bruce, this doesn't capture, except in their time on ice usage, like time on ice per game, it doesn't really capture their defensive attributes. I get that. This system that I, this really simple little system that I've come up with, but it's doing a better job than whatever Mm -hmm. they're doing right now. Like they haven't, they have all of this complex, whatever they're doing. War or Gare or, you know, yeah. wins above their re- replacement for these players that they're working mm-hmm. out. It's not, it, it, they're making it, they're not focusing on the most important things. And with forwards, it's actually pretty easy to do that. I, I'm going to argue. And um, he would have been better off um, doing that in terms of rating the forwards. Now, defensemen, it's harder to do just based on, because you know, their defensive play is so much more important than anything else, almost anything else they do on the ice. So hard to measure. And it is really hard to measure. And, yeah. you know, you can do it by time on ice as a proxy. You know, if you look at shorthanded time or over, you know, with, where the, how they're used in key situations, who do the coaches have out there? You can, you can try to come up with ways to rate defensive prowess of defensemen. It's really difficult to do. But even there, Bruce, I came up with a statistical system, which I think, uh, well, let's just go down. Let's look at that. Let's, you know, using just time That's on ice minutes, in, eh? in different situation points and power play points. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the top 10 defensemen that I came up with in, NA, in the NHL was Devin Taves, Victor Hedman, Adam Fox, Roman Yossi, Kale McCarr, Aaron Ekblad, Drew Doughty, Chris Letang, Darnell Nurse, and Brent Burns. So I think it's not a bad list. I think it's actually capturing who is really performing at a high level as defenseman. And I'm not saying it's a perfect list. And it, mm-hmm. maybe it's not an, maybe it's not a, a list that's going to help you identify undervalued players. I, right. I will say that about the way I'm looking at things. Well, under, but I undervalued do tend to be underutilized. And that's what yeah. you're looking for. And then yeah. if, you're, so, if, you're, if you're measuring how much they're used, well, you're, you're going to miss them by definition. You need a different, different filter. Yeah, so I'm just guys. trying to look at, yeah, and so I'm not saying my list is good at that, like it's mm-hmm. good at, at recognizing these undervalued players, but it's looking at, I think it's getting a pretty good job of recognizing who's got some real value and real solid performance on the ice, and Eric Carlson, who who this guy is suggesting is a good contract, he's not on the list in the top 50 um, this past year, Carlson didn't make it, so um you know, even on his own team, the, the performance. Let me just make sure that's correct. I'll just, maybe, yeah, that. Oh, no, he is, Bruce. Yeah, I, I'm incorrect. He is ranked number 23 on this uh, by going by time on ice, mm-hmm. different time on ice and points. So he's the number one defenseman in the NHL, but he's paid, what is he paid? 11 and 11.5, 11. I think it is for. So he's old, you know. He's kind of over, you know, he's 23, but he's paid number one. So that would, number one or number two for mm-hmm. NHL Demon. So that would make him overpaid, a little bit overpaid. Not a value contract in any way. Not a good contract, but, you know, maybe defensible on some level because you are getting a number one, true number one defenseman. He's in the top 32 at least. So anyway, anyway there's he, my rack that. I he, just, I just find some. 
he uses three main things for evaluating, and even strength scoring is one of them. Goals per 60, primary assists per 60, points per 60 uh, to evaluate uh, goal scoring, playmaking, and overall scoring creation with all stats at even strength. So power play is completely ignored. Then even strength play driving using evolving hockey's regular regularized adjusted plus minus RAPM, which is uh, different from adjusted regularized plus minus, I guess. I mean, when you have need two modifying words, uh, it, you know, there's 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 math going on, and I you know I'm a math guy. I don't discount it, but I, I don't accept it uh, as you know being the only way to to uh, to measure. And again, concludes all stats at even strength. Well. Even strength is, you know, 80% of the game. Certainly not 100% of the game, and it's certainly not. It's not even 80% of the goals. There's so many well, no, it's, goals yeah, scored that's on, right. in, in uh, leverage situations like uh, uh, power play and goalie out scenarios. And then the last category is goals above replacement, and that does at least include some of the special teams. In it, but I would suggest overall they're they're underrepresented here. And anyway, there's there's clearly some flaws, and I mean, good on him for you know developing a model and so on. But geez, when you have Evan and Oilers ranked 31st in the league and New York Rangers ranked 30th in the league, maybe it's time to take a step back and say that doesn't seem to line up with what actually happened on the ice. Maybe we should. Uh, Revisit and uh, and uh, and see what we can <laughs> see what we can do different that that that, that yes. makes the results match up a little better. So, and, and you know what? Like as you write about hockey, like your ideas change. You, you your your system gets better over time. You start to see the flaws in it. You know, like you know our own system of video review. Like initially, I just looked at goals for and against and then i realized you know that's not that's not good enough you got to dig into scoring chances and then we you know we started to look at grade a shots focus in on that and you know there's refinements in your in your method every year so Mm -hmm. so where wherever this writer is starting out at Mm -hmm. and evolving wild is starting out at they will get better they will do better and and the wood money system for ranking um for instance ranking um quality of competition that you're playing against i find that to be generally speaking really excellent like i i put a lot of weight when they say someone faced the toughest competition and here's the number i put a lot of weight in it because i think it's a sound conceptually sound they're looking at you know essentially the i think the goals looking at all the players you face like what's their goals plus minus what's their shots plus minus mm-hmm. um what's their what's their uh, shots at net plus minus i think when you look at it you know, overall with this huge ocean of players that you're facing, it there's something where it does average out. And if you're facing against guys who really do get a lot more shots for than shots against all the time, that's you can put some weight in that. It, it's conceptually sound. Um, so, yeah. but their, um, their system was stressed in 2021 during the uh, uh, the four silos NHL season yeah i had the four divisions that were never played against anybody else and some divisions had more elite players than others so to compare say edmonton to colorado when uh they were you know they never had any common opponents uh the percentages didn't line up very well and you 
within the team, the numbers were fine, but comparing across teams didn't work well. Whereas in a normal NHL season that we're back to, you're playing two to four games against all other NHL teams. And there might be a little bit of imbalance, but it won't be very much. It's not like you're playing 11 games against uh, uh, or 10 games against one team and zero against you know 20 plus teams like that, that, that one season. So that, they they did have a little bit of stress that one season with that uh, measurement, and it still had value. It just had less value to me that year. The other thing I always wonder about shots plus minus systems too. Like so, when you're going by goals plus minus, we all agree what a well, when a goal it's when a goal there's a goal, it's a goal and mm-hmm. it's official. Shots though, I always I always wonder if there's some NHL cities who are m- much more likely to be biased in favor of the home team that you might get these kind of outlying NHL cities who again and again and again just are more likely to say, oh, yeah, that was a shot on net for our guys. And now that really wasn't a shot on net for the other guys. And the shot totals are going to be every game 5 to 10% off or something like that in favor of the home team, more than you're going to find in other NHL cities. And I don't know if that's ever been studied in depth or if there's ever been a, a, a real look. It at has that. But I, I suspect that there are some teams where this where you're going to get some statistical anomalies in favor shot totals in favor of the home team and more so like let's say in Edmonton you have some just real hard ass hockey guys for instance and they're just like a shot is a shot is a shot and mm-hmm. that's how we're going to rate it and you know mm-hmm. we're going to be tough on the Oilers and we're we're not going to give them any favors and, right. and and you could also have it go in the other direction almost mm-hmm. if, if you get a situation like that so I, I could that happen? Uh, absolutely, and it did for a while. And I think the, I think the NHL has ironed out a lot of this and 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 more regularized it. But uh, when the real time scoring system RTSS came out uh, early in this century, there was there was huge imbalances from rink to rink, and not just in shot. New York Rangers, Madison Square Garden, they overcounted everything. Like everything had high numbers, but uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the numbers when you compared home to road for things like hits or block shots, uh, um, uh, giveaways, takeaways, uh, they showed these huge imbalances where some teams have sort of three times as many takeaways on home ice as they did on the road. I see, or yeah. three times as many giveaways on home ice as they did on the road. Like it wasn't just all the positive stats, but it was just like, the scorekeepers seemed to notice the home teams more than the away teams. And in some rinks, it was just really bad to the point of being, you couldn't, you couldn't put any value in the information. And one of the early uh, cures for that was that some analysts just ignored home stats and only used road stats with the idea being that at least that, you know, they're, they're getting treated as a road team, like all, you know, there's not any favoritism for the road teams. It's it's uh, so that that ironed out some of it, uh, but I think the NHL kind of, a few of these got published, and I frankly think it was embarrassing for the league. And they said, "Geez, we got to get do better than this." There's six times as many giveaways in games in Madison Square Garden as there are in New Jersey. You know, like what the hell? And it's a good question. So, <laughs> and so I, I think they kind of cracked down internally on on making sure there were standards that were understandable and followed by all teams and what maybe even there was some oversight. 
but it, it, it's better than it was that I will submit and I will also submit it's still a long way from perfect they they I do read the play-by-play uh, -play -play summaries and some plays just get missed or other ones you know like we look at plays when we're looking at was there two scoring chances there or three and you look at the uh, at the play-by-play -play and there's one you go well there's at least two shots in there and maybe the third one and they just missed and they didn't, they didn't yeah get the whole thing and I mean how can you really it's a fast game and sometimes you get five or seven minutes without a stoppage and not a lot of time to go back and say oh yeah we need to go back to 1536 and see what happened on that scramble you know so it's 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 always I and mean, any numerical representation is always going to be an approximation of uh, of uh, what actually happened well i remember uh, interviewing the people who run staff leads and that's the company mm -hmm. that john chica started Mm -hmm. uh Jacob became GM in Arizona yes and the, the the estimate I think was in terms of the, the it was a seven percent overall error in in the, all the statistical input mm -hmm. that was going mm -hmm. in and I but the, I didn't ask him if there was a variation like if, whether it's 14 percent in some cities and one mm -hmm. one or two percent in others yeah. but that was the average was seven percent it was incorrect and mm -hmm. so this is like is a guy on the ice when a shot happens like you know they're switching off and on and like they get the players wrong on the ice sometimes it's just all these different kinds of errors and i don't even know if you can how, how well you can even measure that because like like i always wonder about the hits stats right yes sir. it's just it's just like was that a hit is mm -hmm. that a hit uh is mm -hmm. that a hit taken it that's mm -hmm. that has got to vary quite a bit because sometimes you you see sometimes you think how do the Oilers only have 15 hits that game i mean they, mm -hmm. they, they 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 seem to be hitting players at every turn and sometimes it's the other direction as well so yeah. that's another one that's a little bit confusing it's it's it, so going by the numbers in hockey it's just fraught by its very nature like it's just it's it's hard to mark things correctly and you and i know this bruce because in our own work when, when we do yeah. the video review like i do the initial <laughs> video review you find all kinds of, you know you find three or four or five things where i've just missed it like when I, and I will openly admit like I, I I didn't see that or I got the player wrong or it's easy to make mistakes it's good to, so that's why we have that kind of oversight you doing the review and then there's plays where you and I just we don't agree and oh. it's and, it, and we don't agree because often it's 50 50. yeah it, it, you could say that was a great a shot or not and it's just like flip a coin whether you know whether it meets the definition or not because it's just so close it's it's hard to tell right so all statistics are um all of the statistical work is difficult to do and um and it's fraught yes yeah anyway there's uh many of these things are works in progress and many of them do improve over time or they get discarded because they don't pass the smell test so we've maybe over responded to this nhl team salary cap rankings and he says an introduction and yeah we're very much in the introductory phase and uh good luck mr scott maxwell i hope that you uh, are able to uh make some progress on this because clearly there's some work to be done <laughs> indeed same could be said of us all yeah, all right absolutely. <laughs> absolutely yeah so scott we're in the same boat as you we're just trying to get mm -hmm. it right we're gonna end yeah. uh and uh uh, we we have been highly critical, but uh, stick with it. You'll get better. All right. Is that it, Bruce? Anything else we need to discuss today? Or 
well, the Oilers announcing the Hall of Fame, uh, Team Hall of Fame, is an object that got my interest as a hockey historian, and uh, good timing. Uh, 2022 marks the 50th anniversary of the Edmonton Oilers as an entity, and I'm not sure what they're doing specifically for that, but uh, you and I will remember back to the WHA coming in in the fall of 1972 and uh, uh, pro hockey, uh, major league hockey, gaining a toehold in this town and uh, and developing from there. So that, but I don't know that the Hall of Fame will actually include any more WHA players because I'm frankly not sure how many of them belong in it. Uh, you know, Al Hamilton's already up there, right? Uh, uh, but uh, they have, uh, there is a lot of players who are not in the Hockey Hall of Fame, which has been their criterion up until now. You get in the Hockey Hall of Fame, you get your number raised, otherwise you wait for the team to do some other initiative. Well, they finally got there, and it's now time to consider a whole bunch of guys. I could write several posts on the subject of... Uh, guys uh, being uh, deserving or at least worthy of consideration for the uh, Oilers Hockey Hall of Fame. And uh, we don't even know, are we talking about players? Are we talking about suits? Are we talking about inspirational figures? Uh, you know, I mean, by one argument, Joey Moss and Ben Stelter deserve spots in the, in the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, by another, Peter Pockington deserves a spot there. I mean, where where are they going to establish the boundaries? Uh, but they're naming two players, right? They're going to name players. two players, and they're going to be recognized at the November 3rd game against New Jersey Devils. So who do you say? Be in my mini pack. Well, I got asked this on Low Tide and Jameson the other day, and I defaulted to my happy place, the 1980s. <laughs> And I declare that the two members of the Magnificent Seven who uh, aren't in the Hall of Fame nonetheless deserve their place in the Oilers sort of secondary internal Hall of Fame, that being Dr. Randy Gregg and Charlie Huddy, the two stalwart defensemen who both won five Stanley Cups in this town. And uh, I mean, uh, and they're not even this, like, I mean, obviously, Ryan Smith, Doug Waite, there, uh, there's many, many guys that not even, even if we discount the current players, which obviously there's more guys making their case as we speak. Uh, but to me, that would be a good starting point, would be sort of to, to fill that and then look at, uh, at the later candidates. But I suspect it'll actually go the other way, and they'll start with some of the more recent players to, uh, to fill that huge void. Because uh, the last, I think the last... Um, of the numbers that are raised, the last guy to actually be active as an NHL player was uh, Mark Messier in 2004. And the last to be active as an Oiler would have been uh, Kevin Lowe in 1997, 97, 98. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's, there's a big, big gap in the last quarter century. So I expect that uh, guys like, uh, like uh, Smith in particular and, uh, uh, Wait and Hemsky and so on. They they will. They yeah, I wouldn't be surprised day. if it was Wait and Smith. I wouldn't be surprised. I like your argument though for Huddy and Greg. That was I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I think it's a strong argument. I think that's as mm-hmm. you know solid rationale. My own picks would be Esatikinen mm-hmm. and Ryan Good Smith. Choice. Yeah, I just think those two players were 
outstanding hockey players. Mm-hmm. Tikkanen's career, um, he he was he was such a fine hockey player and such so integral. Mm-hmm. Certainly in 1990, especially to the Stanley Cup victory. And um, Ryan Smith was, of course, just a right. fantastic player for a long, long time with the Edmonton Oilers. And and but I I like I like Heidi and and uh, Greg certainly be included mm-hmm. down the road. Yes. Um. And and Some being point for sure. Yeah, you know, the interesting one will be Chris Pronger. Yeah, I was where just going to bring him up. What's what's he, the limit? What's how 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 like Ken Nielsen <laughs> and Chris Pronger? Like, how long do you have to have been with the Oilers? Mm-hmm. Chris Pronger was the best Oiler on that. 2016, I think, and not mm-hmm. it wasn't close. Without him, none of it happens, and mm-hmm. it did happen, and they came close to winning the Stanley Cup that year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm one year. inclined to recognize one year. one year, but I'm inclined yeah. to recognizing that one year for what mm-hmm. it was, which is one of the, you know, maybe one of the top ten seasons in Edmonton Oilers history for an individual player, um, top 25 at least. <laughs> Well, Gretzky's uh, got the top nine. So well, that's see. the problem. Right? <laughs> SCA's got the next ten, and then you got the other guys. So, coffee and curry. Uh, yeah. It's pretty hard to. It's, it's hard to get in the top twenty-five. Put it that way. But he, he no. was that good. I mean, I think it's. No. You, you can make an argument. Top, so anyway, top top ten different players to have a great season. And yeah. maybe it's in that discussion. There you go. There you go. Thanks for changing the parameters. <laughs> so my argument makes more sense, please. Well, there's a lot. There's, the parameters are what interests me. I'd really be keen to see what are they looking for and what kind of, you know, like I say, there's Pronger, there's Pockington, there's, you know, Joey Moss. Like, I honestly expect he might be one of the two this fall. Like, Joey has got a, got a real shot at it. So. And Ben Stelter. I mean, it's. Mm, yeah. And, and, and I mean, he's, you could say, one year as well, but boy. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Did he have an impact, and uh, yes. maybe that would be the best, yeah, a, a very great way to honor that that uh, you know, that young boy that uh, left us so soon. Well, maybe there would be a category like builders and big personalities, or builders, <laughs> or uh, you know, out, you know, something like that. Right. Long-suffering fans. This guy, <laughs> this guy bought his season ticket in 1992, and he's still with us after 30 years of losing. <laughs> You know, not quite. You know, but you know what I'm saying. There's, there's I do, Bruce. We are both. <laughs> we are both. Uh, what is it now? It's uh, 41 year fans. Mm-hmm. So well, I timed it perfect. I was the season ticket holder from 1977 to 1993, and I could hardly have picked a better time to see the rise and fall with one bad season of the Edmonton Oilers. And uh, that was when uh, I could no longer afford, afford season tickets. And I thought, well, it's never going to get any better than what I've seen already. I'm still a fan of the team, but I just can't be going to every game anymore. And uh, so timing was pretty good for me personally. Okay, final question. If you yep. had to pick one other WHA player, not named Wayne Gretzky, to be in the Hall of Fame, like if, if you were to say, so who would that be? Who would you pick? Al Hamilton's in, so and I, you can't pick Gretzky. So who 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 would you pick? Oh boy! See, I'm not, I default to Jacques Plant and Norm Ullman, but you know their their actual fame did not come from what they did as Oilers. Uh, so that's so. Uh, it's weird because that team was yeah. it just changed play. It was like the CFL, right? The mm-hmm. players were coming and going a lot more. It mm-hmm. seemed like 
in those days, like, you know, a team would, some WHA team would fold and suddenly you'd get five new Edmonton Oilers overnight. Uh, it it was it was a weird league, I mm-hmm. and so I, I don't know who I would pick. Like there's a couple like Ron Chipperfield, B. Um, B. J. McDonald would be B. J. McDonald, a good player here for Paul two Schmier. years. Mm-hmm. So there's a cut, you know, um, in the, in the early days I can't even think Jim Harrison. So it could be mm-hmm. Jim Harrison. I'll go with Jim Harrison. He's my okay. pick. The first okay. big Edmonton Oilers star was a star for a couple of years till he got hurt. Yeah. Uh, Jim Harrison. Okay. Who's your pick? Your final, who's well, your final, what's your final answer? Oh, geez. Uh, I'm going to cheat and say Bill Hunter. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> he brought us the Edmonton Oilers. Sure. I mean, he's got some, he's been memorialized in Hunter the Lynx. The mascot of the Edmonton Oilers. His name is not Hunter by accident, nor is he number 72 by accident. That's something I, for one, really appreciate that they made him 72 and not 79, that they're actually acknowledging the full extent of the uh, I like that the too. Oilers, Oilers history. So. so Jim Harrison, two seasons with the Oilers, the first um, with the Alberta Oilers. Mm-hmm. 1972, 73, 86 points in 66 games. The next year, he had just played 47 games for the Oilers, 69 points in 47 games. And then he got traded to the Cleveland Crusaders to finish out his career in the... uh, Oh, actually went back to the NHL, played a couple of years with the Chicago Blackhawks and finished out his career with the Edmonton Oilers in 1979-80. I forgot this. Three games Mm -hmm. with the Oilers in the NHL. To finish it all off, Jim Harrison is my pick. Bill Hunter is a cheat, Bruce. That's you cannot pick him. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Bruce, for talking. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. Stop recording.